Good morning, South Canyon. I hope you're all ready for some crazy kickball and wiffle ball and all that kind of good stuff at the park this afternoon. Um, and if you're not interested in those things, I hope you'll still come and laugh at all of us who think we're still young enough to play those games. If you wouldn't mind opening your copy of the scriptures and joining me this morning in First Thessalonians, or sorry, Second Thessalonians, see that? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read through the whole chapter this morning. Actually, this part of our series is one chapter a week, so in two more weeks we'll be done. And uh, then, Lord willing, um, Joel will be preaching for us. Uh, our family is going to be on vacation for a week. Excited about that. It's going to be a staycation, so we're going to go see what y'all love about the Black Hills even more and dig into it a little bit. And um, looking forward to hearing Joel preach that Sunday. Um, but this morning, we're here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So I'm going to read the text in its entirety. I ask if you would follow along. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, uh, we do have Bibles here that are provided for you. And you're welcome to join us as we read. I think the page is already turned. Um, but um, follow along as, as I read God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that as we look to your word this morning, that you would give us understanding. <clears throat> Meet us where we are. Make us what you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think overall the passage as a whole, is showing us that Christ is glorified 
as God grows and preserves us until Christ returns. With this added caveat that we ought to stay the course. So I'm going to say that again. Christ is glorified as God grows and preserves the church until Jesus is revealed. So stay the course. According to Acts chapter 18, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were in the city of Corinth for about 18 months. So it's possible that Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, and they read it, and then they responded to Paul, which prompts the second letter, all while they remained in Corinth. But based on what we read in 2 Thessalonians, it seems that there was a little bit of a mixed bag of what Paul learned about the state of the church in Thessalonica. He was very thankful, as we see in verses 3 and 4, that his his brothers and sisters in Christ's faith was growing, that their love for one another was increasing, even in the face of suffering, that they were still persevering. But he's also concerned about how rattled they had become in three particular areas. And interestingly enough, they're broken out in chapters. So in chapter 1, the issue that Paul is addressing is why is God allowing his people to suffer for the kingdom? And how will he judge when Jesus comes? In chapter 2, we see that there's a danger that the church would fall into false teaching because some people were hearing that Paul had written to the church this was the, the, the lie that was being perpetuated, that there was this fake letter from Paul to the church that the day of the Lord had already come. And so you can imagine their concern. And Paul has to tell them, no, that day won't happen until a very important event takes place. The rebellion of Antichrist. So that's chapter 2. And then Paul says as he discovers, that not every one of those idle people in the church had returned to work. And so in chapter 3, he gives a stern word of rebuke. So that's the summary of the book. Now as we look at our text here this morning, we see a very simple introduction, verses 1 and 2. If you look back at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see a lot of commonalities. There's a lot of overlap. The same three men are writing to the same church. And it's interesting that as Paul is welcoming them and greeting them, that he says, the greatest wish that I can have for you as a follower of Jesus is to experience the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come into this church, you've heard it in our, in our welcome, you've heard it in our pastoral prayer even this morning. Our desire is that more and more people would know the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. And this passage uniquely opens and closes with references to prayer. If you look at verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, Paul says. And then in verse 11 and 12, he speaks of, to this end we always pray for you. So they're kind of bookends and help us see the structure of the passage. Verses 3 and 4 function as a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Verses 5 through 10 function as a defense of God's justice while verses 11-12 are a reminder that we will continue to pray with confidence that God is going to complete that very work in, here, in you that he has begun. 
And so as we look at the passage this morning, let's dig into verses 3 and 4, where Paul is celebrating God's work of grace. You notice that he's thanking God, that God is the one responsible for growing their faith and growing everyone's love for one another. So there's this commonality within the church. It's not just a few people. They don't just have a Ken and Karen, right? Martin, who are out there ready to give hugs, and Jerry and Carol. There's more in that church than just three or four or five. Paul says, every one of you and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This could easily be understood as a pat on the back. But if you remember something, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians... He prayed in chapter 1 and verse 3 and thanked God of the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope that this church had in Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Thessalonians, it's almost as if Paul is saying, I am seeing an answer to prayer. You guys are really growing. God is growing you. And that you are loving each other more and more. Things that he prayed for in the first letter are things that he is celebrating in the second. Now what's interesting to me is, why is it that people think spiritual growth is so strange? Especially in the areas of faith and love. We tend to speak of faith in static terms as as though it were something we either have or we don't have. And so you might hear someone say, man, I wish I had your faith. As though, it's like saying, I I wish I had your complexion, like it's a genetic disposition, predisposition. Or we complain, I've lost my faith, as though it was a pair of glasses that was just misplaced. But faith is actually a relationship of trust in God, and like all relationships, it's a living and dynamic growing thing. So there are degrees of faith. Jesus points this out when he rebukes one for having little faith, and then he applauds one as saying, I've not found faith like this in all of Israel. But it doesn't just stop at faith. The same is true of love. You know, we fall in love. I can't help it. I love him or I love her. We're helpless or I just don't love them, and that we can do nothing about it. And yet love, like faith, is a living relationship whose growth we can take steps to nurture. And so I would say, just as muscles are made stronger by regular exercise, so faith and love increase the more they are used. Nurture these, South Canyon. Nurture faith and love in your life. Pray that God would grow more faith in you and more love for others in you. And then don't be surprised when God does it with a most unexpected and most irritating, let's just be honest, trial, right? He's going to put you in the path of someone who is hard to love, a prickly porcupine of a person. So step into that, knowing that God is answering your prayers. That God is trying your faith with a a difficult situation at home or at work. Step into those moments and rejoice that God is answering your prayer. He wants to increase the love of his people for one another. He wants to increase his people's faith in himself. He wants to make us more like Christ. We see all that in verse 3. Now look at verse 4 where Paul is rejoicing 
and boasting about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. It's unusual for Paul to do this, so let's just unpack this for a moment. Rarely does he brag or boast about works that he was involved with, but the unusual growth of the Thessalonians brought about this unusual boasting. And it's important for us to understand from the outset that Paul isn't bragging about the believers themselves Rather, I see verse 4 connected to verse 3 that Paul is boasting in what God is doing in their lives. These are two parallel thoughts that Paul is celebrating God's work in this church. Not only is God growing these people, but Paul is able to speak about what God is doing in front of other churches to encourage them. Likewise, that God is alive and he is growing. Practically speaking, notice that these people, the steadfastness of their faith in the face of persecution and afflictions. And we know that this is evidence that they truly are converted because no one goes to the firing squad unless they have no choice or they are there by conviction. And so we are reminded of what Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 4 of his first letter, that you are loved by God That he has chosen you. God's preserving grace is highlighted in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And pastorally speaking, Paul draws from Jesus' own teaching. Remember these words from John 10, verses 27 and 20 through 29? Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I have given them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Paul is putting these two things together, and he's speaking to a church that is paralyzed with fear because of persecution, and yet he's pointing out God's growing you, God's keeping you, and the result is that you can stand up to these challenges because God's grace is evident in your life. You are redeemed. You've been born again. And that should produce a settled confidence in the life of any believer who suffers for the gospel because we know this. That our faith is the result of God's grace, first begun in our conversion, ongoing in our sanctification, and ultimately in our future glorification. But Paul doesn't just stop with a pastoral conclusion about election and God's preserving grace. He also provides us an example of biblical affirmation. Notice his boasting is in God's grace. He's not stroking this church. He's not flattering them. He's not trying to build up a sense of pride. Look at this. You've all grown up. My, my. Last time I saw you, you were just a bunch of young Christians. We don't stroke other people in order to make them feel better or to give them a sense of pride that they may wrongly believe they've accomplished something in their own strength. Neither should we be silent, though, when we see evidences of God's grace in the lives of others around us, because doing so, being silent, may also lead that person to discouragement. But if we follow Paul's example, we will avoid corrupting speech that leads to pride and silence which leads to discouragement. 
And so when you and I see what God is doing in others, we ought to affirm his work of grace and encourage one another in the most basic of Christian ways. For example, I thank God for you because... Because the gifts that God has given you, you're using for his honor and his glory. Because I see God's grace in your life. You know what? You are showing love and gentleness to your brother that you used to not show. That is a sign of God's grace. Christ is growing more and more in you. You know, the sad reality is that we rarely affirm one another for godly labor. I mean, so often we do something and then we move on to the next thing, right? And, and, and I'm not talking about flattery again, but we tend to not really speak about a situation unless there's a problem, when there's bad news, like you forgot to do this, or you could have done this better, or you did it wrong. In reality, wherever the gospel is being lived out among God's people, there will be much to affirm if we have eyes to see. So, hear me this morning. We thank God for all of those who over the years have supported the Black Hills Pregnancy Center and other pregnancy crisis centers like it. We thank God for all those who have been praying and working to bring an end to abortion in this country. And we thank God for every volunteer at South Canyon Baptist Church and every staff member who was involved in sharing the gospel in VBS to the children. And we thank God for parents who took the time to enroll their children in a gospel-centered program. We thank God for a church who recognizes the importance of gathering together for fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ who will not only gather in this, in this room, but will also later gather this afternoon in a picnic to rejoice and fellowship. We praise the Lord for men and women who handle the church's finances and maintain the facilities, for the sound and the music teams, for the ushers and the greeters. Your ongoing service and love for others is a testament to God's saving grace in you. Thank you for loving us so well. In these verses, 3 and 4, Paul points out evidences of God's grace in the life of this church. And now in verse 5, he says he sees evidence of God's righteous judgment. So the question for us is, what is he seeing that would give him that thought? What was Paul seeing as evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Is, Is he referring to the fact that they're suffering for Christ? Or is he referring to the fact that while they suffer for Christ, they're showing love, faith, and endurance? Or maybe it's both. And I think it is. And so as we look at verses 5 through 10, we move to the second portion of the text. It's a defense of God's justice. You remember in Mark, or maybe you don't, so I'll remind you, in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer. He was going to die on a cross and that by following him, they too would suffer. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught that God blesses those who suffer for his name and provides the perspective we must have 
this confidence in our heavenly reward. Jesus also taught how we are to treat those who persecute us. Don't seek revenge, he says, but do good to them. In fact, I want you to love them. Paul understood this, which is why he could, it was written of him in Acts chapter 14 that he was encouraging the church through, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's not a simple life, and it's not a static life. It's one of constant upheaval and challenges. Paul would say later in Romans 8 that we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what are we seeing here from what Jesus has taught and from what Paul says, both in these verses I've cited and here in our text? You can't unhook the motor or the, the, the car, the train car from the engine. Suffering and glory go together. Tribulation and the kingdom go together. We are not in the kingdom of heaven even though we are seeing parts of the kingdom manifested in a church. We see God's authority over his people as we submit to his word. We see God's grace and peace working out itself in the lives of people. But we know that this whole world is not experiencing that. And so, in a real sense, God was allowing these believers to suffer And he wanted them to know that he was preparing them for glory. Their suffering was an evidence of the justice of God because it's the first part of the equation which guaranteed that the second part would come. You must suffer for Christ in order to be raised with Christ. There's no way around it. There's no shortcut to get to go and to collect your $200, and to have an easy pass around Park Avenue, or whatever it is. Monopoly, in case you were wondering, okay? On the other hand, although God was allowing the persecutors some rope, he was particularly at work in the Thessalonians. He was on their side, sustaining and sanctifying them. He was using their persecutions as a means through which to develop their faith, love, and perseverance in contrast to the prejudice, anger, and bitterness of their persecutors. He was preparing them for their eternal kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And because of this, they were not made worthy in the sense of deserving it, but God considered them worthy for the kingdom for which they're suffering. And so we need to understand that suffering here now is a means for God's transforming grace to fit us for heaven. It's, I mean, none of us like it, right? The Bible teaches us also that there's a day coming where God will vindicate his people, which is why Paul would write to another group of Christians later in Romans 12, and he would remind them, brothers, Leave this to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. God will repay the persecutors. Verse 6 tells us this. And God will rescue the persecuted. Verse 7 tells us this. Jesus is coming. And his coming will change everything. And it requires spiritual sight to see this and to Submit to this. Because our physical eyes, all we see is cruelty, evil, the abuse of power, 
the arrogance of those who hurt others. Christians who are canceled, who are harassed, who are imprisoned, who are tortured and killed. In other words, to our human eyes, it looks like the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. A lack of spiritual sight will not only lead to a misunderstanding of what's really taking place, but it will also cause us to question whether or not God is in fact good. Why did God wait nearly 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, I can't answer that. But what I can say is this. God answers the prayers of his people in his time for his purposes. And we ought to be thankful for that. Remember what Jesus said? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will people be like that widow who was persistently bringing her case before the judge, who who got so tired of her and didn't care about God, but he finally ruled just to be done with her? Do we have that kind of tenacity, knowing that our God is not like that judge? He is not slow to act. He's working all things together for his glory and our good. God answers the prayers of his people in his time. He temporarily allows the wicked to succeed, but his justice will fall upon them when Christ Jesus comes from heaven with his mighty angels. Look at the text again. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief, verse 7, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This passage is showing us that God has a plan. I was listening to a podcast this week and and a brother said this, Speaking of Paul's thorn in the flesh and his desire to see it removed, he says, it was better for him to be in pain than for him to be proud. Brethren, our suffering is real. And when we suffer for Jesus' sake, it's even harder because we know the hearts that are motivating that. Those very people who cancel us, who mock us, who uh, harass us, who for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being thrown into prison, these brothers and sisters in Christ, their hearts are breaking because they know that those who are despising them do so because they have rejected Christ. And yet there is a comfort a resolved confidence that we trust that God knows it's better for us to suffer here and now and to learn to be dependent on him than to live in ease and comfort and ultimately reject him. And by God's grace, we can stay the course even while suffering because God has given us insight into his ways. So we want to run from suffering. We want to step back from it. We want to press back against it. We want to blame it on God or we blame it on others. And what God wants to teach us is, no, I, I want you to stop moving fault around and I want you to start learning that I'm trying to grow you through this adversity. I'm trying to cultivate Christ in you. And let me tell you, sometimes the soil is really hard in you. Instead of complaining about our sufferings, let us thank God for evidences of his justness. 
Instead of flattering people, let us thank God for His grace at work in, our, in their lives. So Paul's arguing that the righteous judgment of God is coming. So then it leads to a few questions that we need to ask in verses 5 through 10. When will God do this judgment? Who will be punished? And what will that punishment look like? And we see these answers right here in these verses. Look at verse 7. When will God judge? Very simply, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The very Jesus, the same person who died and rose from the grave and who ascended to heaven will physically return in bodily form in flaming fire with his mighty angels. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that. So we see the one who was born in weakness. You know, there's no room for him in the inn. He's born in a manger, set in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's there with the livestock. No one knows who his family is. There's no red carpet rolled out for him. There's no celebration except for angels prompting shepherds to go and find him. The one who was born in weakness returns in universal power. The one who was rejected will return to the praise of his saints and the cries of fears by his enemies. And we learn this in the first Thessalonians, that he will raise the dead in Christ and bring them to himself. And all who are living in Christ when he returns will be drawn to his side and we will always be with the Lord. So who will be punished? Well, look at verse 8. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those two categories encompass all believers, both generally and specifically. So whether you are actively rejecting God, this speaks to you, or whether you are indifferent to this God, you are agnostic, you don't believe there is a God, or maybe you've never heard that there is a God. It covers all of us. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which is why it's so important we share the gospel. I would much rather have people face Christ knowing the decision they made than ignorant of it. Giving them a chance to hear and wrestle with his claims of lordship of being their creator, of being a holy God to whom they're going to be accountable someday, rather than he just being some big fuzzy warm guy or a great teacher or just ignored and put aside. Wrestling with what the Bible teaches about God is the best thing for everyone. And verse 9 shows us what that punishment will look like. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, we see a dual emphasis here. Eternal suffering and the absence of God's presence. We find that Jesus speaks of both in the Gospels. He he uses an illustration to speak of one man who was taken into Abraham's bosom in the presence of God, comforted, and a great gulf separated him from another man who was in the torment of fire. We see this when Jesus speaks of the sinner in torment, in the flame, of darkness, the absence of light of God's presence. He speaks of pain in eternal torment. 
Now, I need to just say, verses 8 and 9 are words that are hard for us as Christians to say. I mean, we hear the word vengeance, and what do we think? Revenge, right? You took this from me, I'm going to punch you, and I'm going to take it back. I'm going to use force to exert my will over your own because you have wronged me. But let me just say that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And God is just and righteous. So actually the Greek word that's translated vengeance in our English is not a word born out of emotion, nor does it have the connotation of anything that is evil. It simply means this, that he will do justice to all parties. He is impartial. He will act according to his character, not born out of emotion. So we read that those who reject Christ will experience a destiny of being excluded and disqualified from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might in verse 9. And here's the tragedy. God made us. He made us. And then he made us in his own image. And then he made us in his own image so that we would know him and be with him for eternity, not irrevocably banished from his presence. Without him, without knowing and submitting ourselves to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, we will find ourselves enemies of God. And being separated from the glory of Christ, the condemned will be alienated from their own identity as human beings. Instead of being fulfilled or glorified, their humanity will shrink and shrivel and be destroyed. Instead of shining with the glory of Christ, their light will be extinguished in outer darkness. And this is the solemn alternative that Paul had presented to this church way back in the beginning when he first started showing up in Thessalonica, walking the streets of the city and meeting with people and sharing the gospel. He was painting a picture for them. To know God is to know life and to experience life. And to disrespect God and to reject him means an eternal separation from him. There are only two ways to live. There are only two. And you will choose one or the other. But know this, know the warning that is set before you. Heaven is to be with the Lord forever. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Hell is to be excluded from the Lord forever. Verse 9 here in 2 Thessalonians says. Heaven is sharing in Christ's glory as he's glorified in us. Hell is a total non-participation in the transforming glory God has in store for us. Those in whom Christ is glorified will find themselves and the fullness of their humanity. Those excluded from the glory of Christ lose themselves in total irrevocable ruin. So how can one flee from this wrath that is coming? Well, let me just say very simply and very tenderly, this, is, this has been the experience of every single person who's been converted to the gospel and by the gospel. It is to recognize that there is a God to whom you're accountable. He created all things. And he will judge all of us one day. We will stand before him and give an account. And we need to recognize that we've sinned against him, both in thought and deed. Have you ever stolen something? 
taken something that wasn't yours. It doesn't matter the value of it. Have you ever told a lie? Well, God hasn't. He hasn't done either one of those things. God's never coveted something that wasn't his. He owns everything. But we are coveters. We've looked upon one another with lust in our hearts. I mean, we've all sinned against this holy God, and the the penalty of that sin is this right judgment. And the only means of escaping that is to hear that Jesus is the one, the only one, who can make you right with God because he's of the Father, of the same essence. He is right and holy and good. And today you're hearing the good news that as the Son of God, he has the power to save all who will cry out to him. He has the power to rescue us. And he has the power to judge all who will deny him. So what will you do with this truth? Will you, like the Thessalonians, humble yourself and cry out for mercy now on the day of salvation? Say, I believe this. The Spirit of God is provoking me to agree with him about these things. I've rejected. I've resisted. But today's the day I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus. I want to have my sins forgiven. Or will you just give him a great stiff arm and reject Christ? And find yourselves numbered among those who are going to be excluded from the Lord's presence. Praise the Lord that he gives us warnings like this before the day comes. It shows the love of the Father for us. In contrast to the unbelievers who are going to receive the punishment of hell, Paul speaks now in verse 10 of those believers who will experience heaven when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul's saying there's always this two, two sides of the coin with the gospel. For some it means life and brings life. For others it hardens them and it reinforces the sin nature that they have and the willful desires to reject the truth. Paul says, we preach the gospel to you. You guys believe this, so you need to know that you will participate on that day. You will marvel at who Jesus is when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ reveals himself to the world. It's a day of salvation to all who have heard the gospel and believed it. On that day, the people of God will become the very instrument by which his glory is shown. We will not only see Jesus, but we will share in his glory. We're going to be so radically transformed into his likeness. And that glorious transformation is going to last forever. Praise the Lord for that. Which leads to verses 11 and 12. Our third and final point this morning is that prayer is this prayer that God's power will perfect the saints and bring glory to his name. Paul is confident that God will complete his work in the Thessalonians. And we can be equally confident that God will complete his work in us so that Jesus and the Father are both glorified. And that truth so moved Paul to pray for these believers, it should be an incentive for us to pursue holiness now. So as you look at verse 11, you see a twofold nature. To this end we always pray for you, first, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and... Second, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
So Paul's saying, just as the word in verse 5, worthy, doesn't mean we can make ourselves deserving of God's favor. Remember, God called us when we were sinners. He called us to himself. He did this because we were unworthy and undeserving, and he did it freely for his own purposes. And ever since that time where we responded to the gospel, God has been calling us to live a life worthy of that name. And further, as we see in this passage, and we ought to know this in our own lives, God has been narrowing the gap between what we once were and what we will one day be. Isn't that true? Aren't you thankful that you don't think and live and talk and act and pursue those empty, vain things that you once did and that you're growing in the graces of God? The second aspect of Paul's prayer is that God may fulfill every resolve for good. Every desire of ours to do good, every work of faith, that they would all be fulfilled by his power in us. You see, Paul's not only praying that God would help them and make them more and more of what he wants to be, but that God would even prompt the godly desires and the faith that would result in good works. But did you notice that that's not where Paul ends it? He's not just interested that Christians are good moral people. They do the right things for the right reasons all the time. Paul says there's an even higher goal than just us doing good things. And it's there in verse 12. Look, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God's people live by God's power, not only will we live a life worthy of God's calling, Not only will God enable us and empower us to do good works and live by faith, but ultimately, Jesus Christ will be seen and honored in us. And finally, we will get to be the image bearers that God created us to be. Praise the Lord for this. And you know what's even more exciting than what will be one day? Is that we don't have to wait for Jesus' return for this to take place. Today, we can start praying for more love, more faith, more perseverance. And we can be confident that by God's grace, every day he is growing us to reflect his grace and his glory more and more. Think of it. I mean, the more that God dwells within us, the more that we yield ourselves to him, the more that he moves through us, the more that Christ will be seen in us. He will be displayed to a world who will be attracted and drawn to him. They will admire Christ and adore him just as we do. You see, the purpose of the Christian life isn't for us to get an attaboy, isn't for us to make something of ourselves. It's not for us to secure in heaven a place for ourselves. It's to be spent. Our lives are to be lived and spent so that Jesus Christ might be praised. And God's prayer, through Paul, is that Jesus would be marveled at by all who believe on him. Not that we would marvel at one another. When we get to heaven, we are not going to be comparing anything with each other. We are going to be so enthralled with who Jesus is and what he has done, and the mysteries and the glories of who he is and the Godhead, that we will be lost as it relates to comparing anything with one another. God alone will be our focus of worship and praise. Christ is glorified 
as God grows and preserves us until Jesus comes. So stay the course. Don't let suffering turn your heart from God. Don't let successes in the faith build you up with a false sense of pride, knowing that everything is being done by God's power and for the glory of Christ. Let's walk in faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us this strength to hear your word and to obey it. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do a work in us. We do thank you for all the great things that you have done, the way that you use your people to comfort those who are suffering. To have a word, even an unprepared word, to speak to someone who shares unexpected bad news with them and to be able to recite a scripture that was memorized, to be able to point back to the truth of God's love as displayed on the cross, to be able to point to the conviction that there is justice is coming. There will be a day where God will right these wrongs. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to be your hands and feet so that you might be praised. Lord, we pray that you would save so many more. We know that your hand is not short and that it cannot rescue and deliver. Your ear is not heavy and that it cannot hear these prayers. And so we pray with faith that you will save more and more. The children of this church, the guests who are coming in here, unplanned visits, Lord, that you would so orchestrate things in your life in our lives, for the praise of your glory. We thank you, Lord, that we get to partner in the gospel with you. While it's your power and your spirit that enables us to act and think and move, even giving us the desires of good, we thank you, Lord, that we get to watch all this. We get to be a part of all this. So we are so thankful to welcome back brothers and sisters who have not been able to be here. We're thankful to step into the trenches with brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin and to love on them, to nurture them back to Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we pray, Lord, that through it all, not only would you build your church, increasing our love for one another, giving us a steadfastness of faith and a growing faith, but, Lord, that you would also help us to live to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.